Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hey, Nancy. Good to see you, as always. Always. So, time change. I'm always, like, amazed with this, that last weekend, I know these are posted and they stay on and on, but last weekend was the fallback. Yeah. And I love it. I love when it's all of a sudden dark out at 4.30. Oh, you do. Yeah. I hate it. See, you and I, it's amazing we're friends. I hate it. Because it's just a... It's like always amazed me that there are people that'll say at the end of the summer, oh, pretty soon I hate it when all of a sudden it's dark earlier. I love it. I also like when all of a sudden there's more light, February, March, and it's yeah. getting, but I love this darkness and this sort of shorter days. And there's just two kind of, there's just, no, you know. No, it makes me more tired. Yeah, you're um, that you're that person. I, I am, I am. Especially when you get up and it's dark, and then I love it. And then you eat dinner and it's dark. It's I feel Some, like it's always dark. I don't know how. I don't know how we're friends. I don't. Either. I don't know where that common ground came in somewhere. I guess it's the podcast because yeah. and and most of the time we're here in daylight. I yeah, thankfully, I guess, thankfully. <laughs> I can't even drive at night without street lights. For all yeah. those people who live in uh, those those. Um, desolate type places <laughs> like yeah, I would well, I would not function very well I'm definitely a city girl yeah hi well, all producer Dan here hey, yeah, Dan. so Dan what's your take do you like are you are you me are you Julie which I'm, one I'm team Julie yes. and I gotta say Nancy enjoy it while you can because they're talking about doing away <laughs> I with know it. Yeah. I know and when they talk about that I think I hope they don't do it I'm like the only one most of my friends, my family, will say, what are you talking about? Even when I say I love when it's dark out early, they're like, come on, my own husband, <laughs> come on. I said, don't tell me how I think. I really love it. No, I do. I turn all the so, lights on in the house. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. I also, I also, when it's a rainy day and then all of a sudden at like three or four o'clock, the sun starts coming out, hate it because <laughs> if it's going to rain, rain. Don't switch me around. All of a sudden, I'll think, oh, my. And if it's a Sunday, it's a triple dose. I think, don't. Oh, my God. Don't do it to me. Our poor behind our door family. Yeah. Our, Sorry, our weird idiosyncrasies yeah, we have in this family. I have no excuse. I know. Who are we having today? So today we have just a phenomenal psychiatrist, Dr. Jesse Viner, who is going to talk about the emerging adult population, which is, you know, I, I say it when I'm talking to him. So many times, these are the questions from parents of kids that are starting to struggle with um, these ages. So listen up. It's going to be it's going to be tons of great information. Great. Let's get started. Yep. Today we have Dr. Jesse Viner. He is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and is the national expert in the areas of trauma recovery, eating disorders and severe personality disorders, all with the emerging adult population. As well, Dr. Viner is the founder, CEO, and chief medical officer of Yellow Brick, a national referral center for troubled emerging adults in Evanston, Illinois. So often, these are the calls I get. Julie, I know you get calls too. I mean, calls, inquiries from parents yes. that are really looking for resources about this group, the emerging adult population. And uh, we're so thrilled to have you here Dr. Viner, because I feel like you are the expert. I've known you for years. And what, you know, you, you, now the listeners are behind our door family gets to learn from you too. So thank you yeah. for being here and welcome. Welcome um, to our family. I welcome the opportunity to, to be present with you today. Thank you. So to begin, I always like to ask, how did you get in this field? What inspired you to 
become a psychotherapist and how'd you get where you are? Sure. So that's a long story. <laughs> we got time. Um, yeah, well, uh, first of all, wanting to be a physician really uh, came about uh, during my high school years. In Hebrew high school, I was reading that one of the great Jewish sages who also happened to be kind of the Surgeon General for the Ottoman Empire, um, he wrote that um, being a physician was uh, being the finger of God. Mm. And, you know, being a grandiose teenager, that sounded really great. <laughs> yeah. Um, and off to, off to medical school I went. You know? um, but in fact, the experience in medical school where you do a number of different clerkships in different areas of medicine uh, was not satisfying to me. And I was really kind of depressed about it. Uh, oh. A lot of medicine seemed boring. And uh, I wasn't able to really do surgery because I'm colorblind. Oh, oh interesting. And, and then one day I walked on uh, what, you know, people would look at objectively as like the loony bin, you know, uh, for my psych clerkship. And I mean, it was really a crazy place. The physical plant was terrible, but the patients were lined up for the new, you know, batch of victim medical students. And um, they descended on me, and uh, I really enjoyed the relationship. I enjoyed the intimacy. I enjoyed um, the experience of uncertainty and knowing you could never know enough and um, not being afraid of that. And said to myself, I could do this forever and never be bored. It would always be challenging. And um, it would always be um, personally rewarding. And so that's what launched uh, me into the field of uh, psychiatry. And I, have, I was not wrong about it. <laughs> yeah, so interesting. That's really uh, and that's how really long interesting. And how long have you been doing it now? Well, I will have been in medicine this coming July 50 years. Oh, wow. wow. Started medical school enough. in 1973. Wow, And I, I grew up in um, psychiatry in the Northwestern Medical School System. And um, after finishing my residency, um, I was uh, also enrolled in the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis. Because at that time, I actually thought I wanted to be uh, a department chair. Mm. Um, and I'm kind of the last generation where if you're going to be a department chair in a major uh, university setting, you'd kind of be both a, a neurobiologist, a neuroscience guy, and a psychoanalyst. That's no longer as true. Um, but that's what I thought I was uh, on track for. And I ultimately, I ran their drug program for a while. Then I was the medical director for the 100-bed uh, uh, inpatient hospital at Northwestern Medical School. And from there, went on to um, run a private uh, psychiatric hospital system called Four Winds Chicago. Um, which no longer exists. And after that, I ran a group practice uh, up on the North Shore. And those experiences, uh, combined with what I saw in terms of what's happening at a macro level, macroeconomic level with uh, the hospital and healthcare industry, I felt that a certain kind of patient population was uh, really being left behind, um, that being the more uh, at risk, at risk for either death or disability, um, young adult, emerging young adult. 
Um, but I also felt that um, the healthcare industry was beginning to become uh, a more depersonalized, commoditized experience for patients, and not just in psychiatry. Yeah. So I yeah, felt that there was a place system. for starting something new and, in a way, plugging some of the holes that uh, um, these troubled emerging adults fall through and their families. Yeah. So, so back when you're, when you're talking about your beginnings, those, those years you were dealing with adults primarily or all ages before you fell into more of the emerging adult. Yes. And uh, so, so, yeah. So my, my experience uh, at Northwestern and at Four Winds was with all ages. Oh. Uh, teenagers through geriatric. Uh, the, the group practice that I ran um, tended to have um, emerging adults and adults, but not a geriatric or pediatric practice. Mm -hmm. Can you just... What you have to be aware, though, that... Excuse me, Nancy. That's okay. You have, you have to be aware that 75% of all psychiatric illnesses uh, begin to emerge in the mid-teenage years through um, the, the late 20s. So just for the sake of our... Um behind our door listeners, can you make, can you define the emerging adult population? You know, we keep referring to that term. Sure. And, and also more, more or less the ages. I think they've changed since it started. Right. So the term emerging adult was really first coined by Jeffrey Arnett, who is a professor at Clark University. He and uh, Jennifer Tanner, uh, both of whom uh, have been on our board and are consultants to us at Yellow Brick, um, they, they did research showing that there were characteristics of a group that was between the ages of 16 and 26, um, between teenage years and between the more mature adult years, that they felt um, in their research they could uh, define as being different than teenagers or mature adults. And so they coined the term emerging adults to uh, identify this group that is very driven by autonomy. Autonomy is the engine of development in this group. Um, that identity um, is uh, being uh, consolidated in this time, and that it's a time of great change and transition. The average emerging adult moves seven times during this um, period of life, this window of life. And so um, we uh, have taken their research and um, developed a treatment model which attempts to uh, address each of the different developmental challenges that uh, are intrinsic to the work that Jeffrey Arnett uh, did um, back in 1999, I think it was. So these developmental challenges, which are universal for, for all of us across cultures, um, are um, one beginning to uh, have an identity that has an internal cohesion and coherence. Okay, so cohesion meaning it has its own kind of consolidated strength, and that inside the parts kind of can work with each other. Mm -hmm. Secondly, uh, this is a time uh, developmentally where the capacities for self-regulation uh, begin to come online and mature, and need to get consolidated to become a mature adult. Analogous to that, and this is something that's often ignored in many psychiatric settings, is the uh, coming online of executive function and life skill competence. Fourth, 
is um, that um, the, the need to develop secure attachments, but across a full range of intimacy, you know, that um, everything from the capacity to be a, um, a good friend, you know, to being, um, you know, a loving partner. And lastly, uh, there's the need to uh, renegotiate the relationship with one's family of origin and what the literature refers to as connected autonomy. Connected autonomy tries to uh, represent kind of paradox in human development where our capacity to be independent is really based on our internalized connections with people, which are supported by actual relationships as well. And so to be independent, you really need to be able to sustain connectedness. And that's especially true um, in terms of one's family of origin. So the, these are the, um, the kinds of developmental challenges that uh, come out of Arnett's work, but also Erickson's work and many psychoanalytic clinical scholars following them, uh, Bloss in particular, Peter Bloss. So what are some of the, um, with this with this emerging adult population, what are some of the more common mental illness diagnoses that you see? Um, like you said, starting 16, maybe 17, um, that are starting to, that it's realized these things are starting to develop in those years, you know, and then go on into, you know, if they weren't talked about the 20s, you can really blow up. But what are some of the, what do you see as some of the more common diagnoses that come to you? I'll, I'll respond to your question, both in terms of what's true generally across this age group, but also what we end up seeing here at Yellow Brick. So anxiety is the most common um, psychiatric condition uh, within this age group. And what is, what is anxiety? Anxiety is about um, the response to uncertainty right. and the inability to bring closure to uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And um, it makes perfect sense that this mm -hmm. would be an age group that would struggle a lot with uncertainty and um, have especially anxiety. In, especially in this day and age. Yeah. That, that has been compounded. Um, mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, COVID um, really put life on hold for this group. And this is a group that also had their first developmental years post-2008, the crash of 2008. So they really had two um, societal punches to the gut yeah, um, that really affected the context within which they both grew up as young children. And now as they face the world, you know, um, moving from family to society. So they really, really had, um, you know, quite a uh, high level of unpredictability uh, in their developmental context. Uh, depression is the, the next most common diagnosis. And depression is the leading cause of uh, worldwide disability and uh, is often um, a vulnerability to depression is often uh, um, a long-term consequence of uh, anxiety. So there's a, a kind of a way in which they uh, telescope together. The um, next most common thing in our population um, is people who have uh, some type of uh, learning disability, processing disorder, executive function disorder, ADHD being kind of a basket uh, mm -hmm. of those, um, that uh, those 
uh, are being diagnosed more and uh, are real. Um, and uh, about 30% about of our patients uh, have some type of executive function or uh, cognitive processing disorder. We then move to um, a group of diagnoses that uh, are um, you know, in the single digits like OCD, PTSD, um, uh, things of that nature. Um, and then at the lower end of the spectrum, uh, you have the uh, psychoses, the eating disorders, um, and uh, um, conditions that uh, have you know more than less than two percent of the population. I should say though that uh, in this age group, uh, substance use um, and what they call the process addictions are also very prevalent and tend to be comorbid conditions uh, along with um, you know, particularly uh, trauma-related diagnoses, uh, anxiety and depression. And so, um, and we have seen very troubling kind of uh, development where uh, daily cannabis use mm -hmm. uh, uh, is much more common um, and I think exploded during the, uh, the pandemic. Whereas in, in our population, we used to have anywhere kind of around six, 7% of um, psychotic conditions within our overall census. Uh, and now that's about 20% wow. and it is directly related to uh, da daily cannabis use. That's such a the, major problem. The, yeah. The, the, the concentration of cannabis yeah. compared mm -hmm. to what it was, you know, 40 years ago, you know, it was anywhere between, you know, four and 50 times. Yeah. Wow. So, we, we had, that's unbelievable. We had a whole podcast actually about a year ago on that of, mm -hmm. of just that alone. I mean, it's, it's just a whole different world about marijuana psychosis and the, and the fact that it's so easily available to get now, you know, although not that it wasn't before, but you know, now that we've made it quote unquote legal in uh, about 23 States, you know, mm -hmm, I, I feel like, children at a younger age, um, you know, can have easier access to it. And, and since it's, it's illegal in the sense of society deems it's okay and acceptable and it's common, like kids look at you like, what's wrong? Everybody smokes weed. Yeah, it's a very complicated and difficult conversation that we have with people. It has become normed. Um, and it's the cumulative effect. You know, in the moment, it solves a lot of problems, but yes. its cumulative effect is that it begins to poke at and uh, eventually expose kind of neurobiological vulnerability for many of these young people who um, you know, have some type of genetic uh, propensity towards psychosis. That, they, that they don't know yet. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, right. I, I was going to yeah, ask that, you that. So that it's not in the explicit family history Right. Um, because nobody's poked at it with this molecule. Right. So children who've never been diagnosed, and I say children being under 26, because yeah. um, <laughs> we're a little older here, but um, actually 30, no offense to our producer. <laughs> None <laughs> but, taken. But, um, the, you know, the fact that they, maybe they never were diagnosed or they, they may not even have a family history that they're aware about, now all of a sudden it's bringing it out into the forefront. Right. Yes. 
Yeah. About 60% of our census uh, has uh, a uh, substance abuse um, um, related diagnosis that runs in tandem, usually with multiple psychiatric diagnoses. Wow. That's a pretty big statistic. So, um, so talking about the, the treatment side of how you look at this, when, when, parent, when these young adults are coming through your door, um, I know that, and I want you to talk a little bit about your, your treatment center and what it, what it entails. Um, part of that I know is residential. When, when did it come about that you realized that it would help if, if these struggling young adults would live together and get help together? Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So as I had mentioned earlier, I had these three previous um, experiences, and it was especially uh, um, brought to my attention when I was running uh, a group outpatient practice. Uh, I had become known for um, being um, knowledgeable about the neuroscience and as a psychoanalyst, knowledgeable about the in-depth psychotherapies. So I would often get referred individuals who were not doing well in, in um, their, their current treatment. And um, people saw them as either needing, needing more kind of fancy dancing around medications or they needed a more uh, committed long-term in-depth treatment. And uh, people would have crises in their treatment, especially high-risk suicidal crises. Um, and I would send them off to um, the best places in the country where they got very good treatment and were helped to stabilize and kind of uh, know themselves better and come back into their home community, be in treatment with me. And there was a certain um, cohort of um, more vulnerable young people that whether it was within, you know, three weeks, three months, or, you know, a year or two, they were back in the same spot. Mm -hmm. And it seemed that um, the whole system was moving towards uh, episode, episodic care rather than a platform of care. And um, I, that's when I began to think about creating Yellow Brick as a platform of care that could go um, from residential to home health care, and um, where you could enter the system at um, any level of care that you needed. But the way things have evolved is we've become kind of a tertiary care um, center um, where um, kind of like the Mayo Clinic, if you don't get better in your home community with capable community care uh, to try and find a specialized um, treatment center whose model is going to specifically address the issues uh, in this population. So um, we get uh, two thirds of our population comes from across the country, not just the Chicagoland area. I believe it. Do you get any people from outside of the country coming in? We, we do, but it's usually, we don't market outside the country. Mm -hmm. um, um, but um, when we get someone from outside the country, it's usually because they, they know somebody who knows us who's actually in the country. Mm -hmm. So um, I think your question points to something really important, which is that um, there's a really kind of unique kind of energy that's created when you have a, 
a group of um, emerging adults, okay? And because um, almost all programs are really, um, you know, they don't differentiate by age. Mm -hmm. So uh, we look at the, um, the relationships between the emerging adults as kind of the pulse. It's the heartbeat of treatment. It's, it's what happens in their kind of ricocheting, pinballing off each other that begins to bring out what, what their troubles are. Um, as I said earlier, most of our patients have multiple diagnoses across the psychiatric and uh, addiction uh, spectrum, but it's most often their personality development, which uh, has gone um, off the rails in some way that doesn't allow them to really fully be able to address whatever the um, other psychiatric elements are. And so what most community care does not offer uh, is a more in-depth psychoanalytic um, approach to uh, what's happened to these people. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, um, we, we give every patient who's admitted a recent book by Bruce Perry and Oprah, uh, which um, is entitled, What Happened to You? <laughs> where they're trying to reframe the trauma experience from what's wrong with you to you know, let's explore together what happened to you. That's and, great. And I, where I, does that leave you now? And how can you uh, become a better uh, risk manager mm -hmm. and also become more resilient? You know, I often think about what we do is we're, we're training people through in-depth relationships and increased access to themselves and increased self-regulation capacity, um, we're training them to become better risk managers and to be more resilient. And we're in the resilience building business. That's how I think about our world. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Which is great because I, when you were talking about episodic treatment, I'm thinking back to the first time my son was hospitalized and he is 29 now. So he was first hospitalized at 12. That was exactly it. Like, you know, hospitals only kept you for a minute and most of it was dictated by insurance. And, um, you know, as soon as someone felt you were doing better out the door, they sent you. And right. I kept, you know, even at that time, I kept saying, he's not ready. He's not ready. Please don't send him home or we're going to be here again in a few more weeks, maybe even the next day, you know. Um, but I feel like medicine is changing in that facet. Would you say medicine and and theory? I mean, I I'm coming back to these kids living together. I mean, when Julie's saying her son was hospitalized, you know, in an acute stay in a hospital, you do have group work. I know that there is group therapy. There's, uh, you know, it's a five to twelve day experience at the most, and most. and looking at the most mm -hmm. and looking at what could be what's the diagnosis is has it changed? What's the medication? The quick, you know, the quick. What can we do in these few Quick days? But but I do think, I know I'm always somebody who thinks one of the best medications on earth is group work. It's for adults, group, I mean, support groups um, of any Agreed. of any topic. So when connection. You, yeah. When connection. And then yeah. I, I think feeling about, connection. Yeah, I think about this young, this group of this particular age group that you're dealing with. And I kind of uh, you know, almost laugh thinking, wow, that must be something else in these you know, this residential program side of it that you have, having these struggling kids or young adults all together, it it could be great or it could be, there could be arguments, but you know what, it's like resilience is built and also 
in a way, it must be confidence. You know, you're all in this together. There's got to be something really good that comes out of it above and beyond all of the medical help. Well, they have a, um, while it's not always um, pleasant. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. sure. <laughs> they, they all have a kinship based on the fact that they're all facing those same developmental yeah. challenges. It's fabulous. They may have, they have different paths that they've traveled to get to the point where they're having um, these developmental troubles. Um, and their troubles may be symptomatically different, but they're all facing the same thing together. And also um, to learn that they're not alone. They're definitely not alone. And, and shame is such a powerful factor mm -hmm. in causing people to basically hide from um, society, to hide from their family, to hide from their friends, and to hide from themselves ultimately. And so um, the fact that they're all facing the same things together goes a long way in, in, in reducing shame. Uh, the way we organize our uh, full day program with you know, what people call a partial hospitalization uh, program is that each of the six groups in, during the day focuses on one or more of those developmental challenges. Uh, and so um, there's a very active process of working on um, how am I going to get from where, I, where I'm at now to where, where I need to be. And as you were saying earlier, uh, as people begin to make true gains, um, they need to be able to uh, be in a platform of reducing intensities of care, but with the same people. So that we don't think about Yellow Brick as come to Yellow Brick and we'll give you this basket of services. We, we think about come to Yellow Brick and be part of this community. And so, uh, our residence functions like a community center uh, on evenings and weekends for anybody who's at any level of care. And every evening there's both a, kind of an official activity, game night, movie night, whatever, uh, as well as spontaneous things that the, the young people create for themselves. Um, you know, so evenings and weekends, um, they're in relationship to each other. They're enjoying each other. They're fighting with each other. There's, you know, um, they're concerned about each other because mm -hmm. somebody's in trouble and, you know, whatever it is that um, it doesn't have the kind of explicit boundaries that um, you would often experience in a, in a traditional, you know, um, treatment facility where you just come for your service and you go home. Right. You know, here you join a community. And do you have, do you have, um, you have people that are just on an outpatient basis as well? Right, or are they all residential? So uh, it's a very clarifying question. So we think of it all as outpatient, but we don't function as an office clinic um, where you just come for your one therapy session and a week and go home. So we're a specialty provider of care, providing um, residential partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient uh, programming. And it's kind of built into our model that well, you have to leave home. Mm -hmm. So you have to leave Yellow Brick. You have to leave this community as part of your treatment that parallels the developmental um, so you know, issue of, of leaving home. People can, um, about two-thirds of our patients enter at the residential level. 
Um, but others uh, will come for either PHP or IOP without having lived in the residence. Uh, our outcome research would demonstrate that whether it's by living in the residence or just the way in which others participate and engage, the more immersion, the better the outcome. Um, because the immersion allows for disruption and holding. So that in trying to construct a model for treatment, you need to balance this tension between, if you want change, you got to change the platform inside. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, nobody's going to be willing to do that, be that vulnerable, if they don't have some basic confidence that, you know, we're going to catch them if they fall. Right. You know? And so it's the community of peers, as well as whatever trust they develop with us as professionals, that allows them to be willing to let us disrupt them. <laughs> And, yeah. and do so, you? There's always this tension between disruption and holding, disruption and holding. Yeah, but in in that aspect, you've created a safety net, so they feel like if they fall, they have somewhere to go, which I think is is sorely lacking in our in our healthcare system for people of this community. Yeah, we save about fifty ER visits and maybe about I bet. 35 uh, hospitalizations by we have a self-healing room at the residence where anybody at any level of care, any time of day or night can, you know, show up or call and say, you know, I'm losing it. I need to come um, and get some support. Oh, wow, that's great. And how do you, do you involve the families in this time when these individuals are there with peers, et cetera, getting all of this support? The, the family that's home, do you bring them in at all or? So the families are really that. very important. And um, while, while it's especially true for the younger group, people who are, let's say, in that uh, um, you know, 16 to 20, 22 range, um, in some cases, they're extremely important uh, for even the older emerging adult. And so families involved in the assessment, which our assessment occurs over a number of days, uh, involves about 40 hours of uh, professional staff time. And the families are involved in the assessment in um, several different ways. One is we have like a 17 page document that they fill out about, you know, um, the individual and the family's development together um, and the family history of the parents, which often are the ghosts in the room um, mm -hmm. that end up, you know, being, uh, um, lived inside the, the identified patient. We then have a meeting with the parents, um, with our family services director, who takes a kind of a straight traditional history. But then we have the emerging adult and their parents meet with the family services director, and we give them kind of an emotional problem to solve, to see what the process is of how does the family um, regulate emotion and how do they uh, try to negotiate their way through emotional problems. When the assessment is completed, uh, there's a meeting with uh, four or five of the assessment team, um, which involves usually two psychiatrists. Um, and we have all doctoral level staff here, just given the nature of the specialty um, service we're providing. We then meet with the family, the emerging adult, and the core assessment team for usually around two hours um, and talk about what are the findings of the assessment? What are the opinions that derive from that? And what kinds of treatment recommendations uh, would follow from that? We do not um, 
necessarily start family treatment in every case right off the bat. Because by the time people get to us, they've often had a lot of treatment. They've had a lot of, you know, lost night's sleep. You know, they've been in a chronic emergency. Mm -hmm. And that tends to enmesh families. And um, we view uh, the, the better process is to have a period of separateness um, where, excuse me, everybody can begin to trust us a bit um, and where the emerging adult can begin to define um, themselves in relationship to their parents better rather than in this, this enmeshed position, um, which usually causes the emerging adult to just dig their heels in. Um, that you can only come together again differently if you have a period of separateness. Um, and so we kind of follow the emerging adult's lead for when that's going to be in treatment. If, let's say, a person's with us for a while and they're not in family therapy, they're still participating in family rounds where the medical director, family therapist, um, and the individual therapist meet with the parents and the emerging adult together kind of as a strategic planning session, you know, every three plus weeks or so as part of the treatment where we say, where, where are we at? What are we working on? You know, um, what have we accomplished? What are the successes? What are the challenges up, up ahead? So um, we also have parents as partners weekend once a month. We're we basically put the parents through a day in the program um, so they know what the experience of the emerging adult is. But the program's for the parents. It's not about the emerging adults. Mm -hmm. Last thing we do for the parents, every other week, there's a kind of a peer support group that's facilitated by the family services director, but it's oh, not. Just, just for the parents? like the parents Just for the oh. parents. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. So that's... there's a lot wow. you know, that, that needs to um, be involved with the family. And families have um, an open line 24-7 with the family services director. Wow. Um, that they can call whenever they feel the, the need or email or text or whatever it's going to be. Because, you know, a lot of communications go to the from the emerging adult to the parents, um, which, you know, um, let's just say might not always be factual. Right. Well, my other question is, too, so being over the age of 18 qualifies them to be an adult. And so how do you get the cooperation to share and exchange the information? Yeah, great question. So we... Um, we define, we kind of reframe meaning of confidentiality within our setting and ask people to agree with that. And um, most emerging adults do. It's just 95%. Okay. And so um, we identify certain aspects of life at Yellowbrick as confidential. Those would be the person's individual therapy. Um, the nature of the communications with their psychiatrist, not the meds, but the communication, and um, the process groups, okay, the ones that look at, you know, the relationships in the group itself. Okay? Everything else is defined as public. So if you say something in the educational groups, there's pillow talk at three in the morning, you talk to the support mm -hmm. staff at the residence, wherever it is, right. that's all public. And of course, your behavior is public. If you don't show up, you go out drinking, if, you know, whatever it might be, that's, that's you know, um, all in the public domain as defined by the Yellowbird community, not, you know, outside of Yellowbird. Mm -hmm. 
And so the family services director can speak to families about all that occurs in the public domain. And the irony of that is you know, the most troubled parts of you know, the emerging adult um, are going to come out in behavior because they're not yet integrated enough to come out as coherent speech, if you will. Yes. Right? That's where they're at, yes. is their troubles are locked into their behavior rather than into their relationships. You know, and that uh, we understand, you know, behavior as communication. And so, you know, um, there, there are some emerging adults who have such contentious relationships with, with their parents that, um, you know, for some part of the treatment, the parents are kind of, you know, excluded from that. Um, and so that then becomes an issue, you know, for negotiation as part of the treatment at some point. If that person's gonna, if that person has such a contentious relationship, obviously the parents are really important in their emotional life. Mm -hmm, <laughs> you yeah. know, mm -hmm. and at some point we would hope to bring the young person to where they can acknowledge that and face that and begin to relate to it differently. Most of them do. So when we're talking about all of this, this process, which really is fascinating and makes so much sense, um, how long of a time frame does this generally? Hey, right. I mean, what do you look at as, you know, and I ask that on, you know, as far as Yellow Brick, but other, other places too, of just how long is it is given for the general amount of time for someone to. Yeah, your question reminds me of something that I really should underline more, which is that um, all of how we think about what's going to be helpful to people is, you know, brain based and comes out of neuroscience research. And so the, the, the way in which that applies to your specific question here, Nancy, is uh, how long does it take the brain to change? Okay. Um, and- The million dollar question. At a fundamental level, it's kind of like, what causes nerve cells to fire differently, right? Yeah. So those things are what I was talking about before, disruption, Safety, that's the tension you know, um, of hold and disrupt. Um, persistence, novelty, spontaneity, you know, all those things. Um, and repetition, right? And so um, both our clinical experience as well as those of others, but it's also true in laboratory circumstances that it takes, um, you know, around three to four months for the default program of the brain to change in, in a way that will be sustained. You know, you can change it in a day, but then, you know, there's that gravity if it's not reinforced going forward. So, uh, and for our people, um, you know, they, they've developed certain, you know, uh, patterns that have neural networking associated with them that are really not helpful, right? Um, so when you take a, um, you know, a hit of cocaine, right? You release 10,000 molecules of, you know, dopamine. When you finish your homework, you release one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so your reward center needs to get, you know, um, you know um, patterned in a different way. So our research, um, we've been doing outcome research, and I'll go back to that in, in a second. Our outcome research we've been doing since the beginning so we're in our 17th year now, uh, 
it demonstrates that the people who are going to have the most enduring outcome are going to be here somewhere in that four to six month period. Not necessarily at the same intensive level of care, but at some level of care. And usually the more intensive upfront, the, the better the outcome is going to be. We, we do all the traditional measures for um, how to look at outcome. So there are standard kinds of you know, research tools for that. But they all have a built-in flaw, which is, you know, if, if I'm the patient and I love my therapist, I'm going to say treatment went great. If you're the therapist and you think you're terrific, you're going to say it went great, <laughs> you know? Um, so there's a, you know, and the field recognizes this is a flaw. In the same way, it's a flaw to say, well, if the person isn't doing well two years later, your treatment is no good. But, you know, people's lives take on, take a lot of hits that yeah. no treatment could, you know, right. you know, be able to withstand. So what we use is a neuroimaging measure. It's called quantitative EEG. You can't fake sorry, it. Sorry, what's it called? Quantitative EEG. It's a, it's a neuroimaging of the electrical networking within the brain. And it gives you a picture of the default platform. And so we do that at admission and we do that at transition. Mm, and this is as valid as fMRI, according to the neuroimaging research folks. And so, and it costs about 5% what fMRI costs. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have lots of data showing that this model of treatment that integrates neuroscience technologies like TMS and neurofeedback, that integrates cognitive enhancement and executive function, you know, enhancement, in-depth psychotherapy, um, that, um, that this changes the basic platform of the brain at a one or two to standard deviation level, which, you know, is you know, really remarkable data. Really is. Yeah. It's just, it is just unbelievable. You know, and it's such a privilege you know, to see these people change over the course of four to six months. So every um, once a month, uh, every three to four weeks, uh, each patient comes to a meeting with the entire professional staff where we talk about where they're at in treatment. It's actually, it's individual rounds, which precedes the family rounds. Mm -hmm. If you track them over the course of the round, sometimes guests that, you know, are in the rounds will say, how could you do this to this person? You know what I mean? <laughs> you got 20 professional staff and this person's supposed to talk to you. You're like, you know, it's like torture. You know? <laughs> but we say, when's the last time 20 people hung on your every word and cared about you? Yeah. You know? so well, I you want to frame it, you know, yeah. it makes them feel well, a part can, of it. You can track progress of the treatment through these rounds where, you know, people start to come alive. Yeah. And, this this is know, just really fascinating. And I feel like when you mentioned TMS and all this, I, I was thinking, I'm not even bringing that up because we have, we'll spend, that's a whole nother hour and a half, <laughs> maybe another six yeah. hours, but we really will have to have you back for these specific treatments because mm -hmm. they are, very important for people to know and so interesting and you're the man you really um you really have so much and a lot of help <laughs> <laughs> but i hope that you will join us again so we can talk specifically about some of those treatments yeah, because they're they're really um they're really some incredible new and also non-invasive yeah non-invasive uh things that people should know about these mm -hmm. these processes that make a real difference and 
procedures and therapies. So um, I hope you'll come back to join us for that because be that would be another excellent episode of uh, a teaching moment for us and all our of those uh, the behind our door family of listeners would really gain from that. So we can't thank you enough for all this time. You learned a lot. I sure I, did. I really, wow. I, I could just away. listen forever. Yeah. It's just so interesting. <laughs> it's very gracious. Thank what you. What you're doing is, is groundbreaking. It really is. I, I just can't get over it. I feel like it's making a difference with this group of this age group that um, just did not have this years and years ago, no. just didn't have this chance to really um, come around earlier. So they wouldn't expect, you know, explode in the ages of 20, mm -hmm. all of a sudden to a disastrous effect. This is making a huge, huge yeah. difference. So thank you so much, thank Dr. You, Dr. Viner. This was Thanks for asking me. amazing. Having... Hope to see you again soon. Take care. Be well. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behind our door at mail.com that's behind our door at mail.com and please don't forget to like and share our podcast um leave us a rating tell us how we're doing we really want your feedback it's important to us we are so thankful that you are here and listening to us if you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness you can call the national suicide hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.